welcome to Irreligiosity. This is the first podcast. Reading the Bible so you don't have to. Exactly. So, um, being that it's the first podcast, what we're going to do today is talk about our deconversion stories. Hmm. Everybody else out there has their conversion stories, so we might as well begin where they began. I suppose we should introduce ourselves, too. Wow, that might be a nice start. Tell a little something about your background. Uh, well, at least you didn't say backside. Uh, name's Leighton Allred. Uh, I grew up in the LDS religion. Uh, basically, about the age of uh, 20, I began to travel the world. Uh, lived in places such as uh, Italy, uh, over in Manila, Iloilo, a little bit of uh, Vietnam, and uh, spent some time in Cambodia, yada, yada, yada. Basically, I've been around the world, haven't really settled in 10 years. And, uh, yeah, actually through my travels, it led me to this point. And now, Charlie. That was a fast deconversion story. Well, thank you. I didn't realize we were going into the deconversion. <laughs> I, I was pretty sure we were just introducing ourselves. We'll, we'll probably go into a little more detail a little bit later on. Yeah, well, I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs> my name's Charlie. Let's see. Um, I was, see, Leighton and I are both from Utah, so we were born in the um, local religion uh, LDS, Mormon. Uh, let's see. I went to University of Utah, uh, majored in philosophy, and that's really where it started, kind of, the, the seeds of doubt. Uh, I went to medical school, uh, University of Utah, residency in Scottsdale, Arizona, and then moved back and uh, worked at a clinic back in Utah. So, who wants to go first? Your deconversion story? Well, seeing how we're switching back and forth, it's it would my be turn. You. Yes, yes. All right. Well, my deconversion story. Uh, I mean, you know, I grew up in the in a religious type society. My uh, my dad made us read the scriptures uh, pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar now, with when you say religious type society. Yeah. Utah is a religious type society. I don't think you can get away from that. <laughs> but when you say it, you're talking about your family, right? Yeah. So describe your family. Ah, my family. Well, all right, let's see. My uh, parents, who I like to refer to as masochists, <laughs> adopted 13 children and uh, had six of their own, I being the last of the six birth children, if you will. And uh, basically, due to that adoption, they couldn't continue living up in Park City, where actually Charlie was friends with my older brothers. And uh, so we moved to a small little podunk town called Rose Canyon, where we built a four-story house by our own hands, and uh, pretty much lived throughout there until I was about 18, 19. This house is amazing. For those of you guys who don't know anything about... Utah, um, this was Harriman, right? Yep, up in Harriman's about, what, uh, 60 miles or so from Park City, kind of in the canyons, next to an, it was, is it an Air Force base or Army base? Oh, yes, I got in trouble canyon. for stealing a bomb out of there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was that place called? Oh, yeah, there's an Army base just over the mountain, and when I was younger, I snuck into uh, the fields where they were dropping bombs at tanks, and uh, I found one that hadn't gone off, so I took it home cut it open and I shook out all the gunpowder and such that was in it and used it as a piggy bank until the police caught up with me. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Hey, the primer was still active. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, if you're looking for hair men, look towards Kennecott as you're in the uh, Salt Lake Valley. Head a little bit south from there, and you'll run across it. It's I mean, the area that you were in had a little river passage. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's very very country, right? Oh yeah. And so they build this. It looks like it was like an octagon or something. You know, I actually have the news report that they did when they came back and said it was the most haunted house in yeah. America. <laughs> I think we should put that uh, up because you do not realize what type of house this is. Because he's exactly right. It was one giant octagon. With this dome on top. People used to call it the soccer house. You could see it from the bottom of the canyon more than a mile and a half away. You could look up and say, oh, look, there's Allred's house. Yeah. It, it was amazing. So I would I would come uh, visit these guys for the better course of maybe three or four years. Right? Yeah, I'd drive yeah. down from Park City. And I'd walk in and they'd have, it would be in various stages of completion. They had so many kids that they had to take pretty strong measures uh, as to, or else they'd run out of food, right? Oh, yes. Now, that was interesting. My parents were actually accused of child abuse because, or from some of my uh, adopted brothers because my parents put padlocks on uh, all the cupboards, on the freezer to protect the food. And the reason why they did that is a lot of these children were coming from broken homes and so when my dad would come home from the bulk store, he would come home with like 48 pack of uh, yogurt and it would be gone in a single day and they couldn't figure out why. But as it turns out, these adopted children were eating so much of it that they would puke themselves up and then they would get more and eat more because they were so afraid they, were gonna get, they weren't going to get any. And in fact, they used to hide these underneath their beds to kind of save them for later, and you'd come back a week later, and there'd be six yogurts underneath the bed just rotting. So you never ate so much yogurt that you puked it back up? I'm, I'm pretty sure I tried. <laughs> the only time I've eaten, eaten any dairy product that I've puked up was when I was in the military doing the milk chugging challenge. Yeah. <laughs> but no, not in my younger days. I wasn't so starved. I was doing such measures. So you got 19 kids in your family. Yes. And it's extremely religious. Extremely. In fact, every single night, my parents would drag us down, and we would sit down, and we would read Scripture. Now, I'm not talking one of us would sit up there and read. We're talking the excruciating part, where one person reads a verse, and it goes to the next person, and they read a verse, and then it goes to the next person. And so you go through various stages of people not paying attention, so they kind of get there, and they have to search around, find out where they are, and, I mean, just excruciating. But not only that, every morning we were all woken up before school, and uh, we would kneel down to prayer. Every night we would do the same thing. So we are talking very, very religious family here. I gotta say, I gotta hand it to your parents. That takes a lot, a massive amount of dedication. Yeah, you got nineteen kids and they're corralling uh, twice a day, right? Yeah, twice a day. Well, three times if you're talking. Well, they did the scriptures and then they would do prayer afterwards. So yeah, twice a day, but three Every times day. on uh, on Mondays because that's when, uh, if none of you are familiar with the LDS Society, family home evening. Every Monday we would get together and sometimes play games, sometimes just. I uh, have a short lesson from my father or something, but yeah, there were sometimes three times a day we were gathered for uh, some sort of religious activity. And your church on Sunday was three hours. Yeah, long. yeah, and that's not and 
the prayers and the scripture reading continued even on Sunday. So get up in the morning prayer, go to church, sleep through most of it, uh, come back late at night, do the excruciating scripture reading, and then prayers again. So that was so just a Sunday. It's almost like a religious boot camp, except it lasts your entire life. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is that you could ever escape that sort of indoctrination. Well, see, in fact, uh, many of my brothers haven't. I am the only one of the uh, quote-unquote birth children who have taken a step back, taken a real look at, at religion, and then walked away from it. And in fact, uh, I've even been accused by some of my uh, brothers that it's just because uh, I don't like the religion or I can't live up to its expectations. And even some say I'm just angry with God, which is not the case. But uh, yeah, I get that too. It's always it's never the religion itself; it's the person. It's right? always the person that's that's the <laughs> one, and you can always repent and come back. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, yeah. So I mean, we are talking even today. My family is hugely religious. I'm kind of the black sheep of the family, especially where this is concerned, because they take one look at me, call me arrogant, say I, I try to uh, know more than I actually do, which is somewhat comical considering the circumstances but uh yeah that's the type of situation i have actually stepped away from well so basically uh how does someone who comes from such a religious background uh you know i guess fall away would be the way most people would call, call it but uh well basically even in my younger days i would take little looks at the religion itself and little parts of it just never really made sense to me but you know being the good little religious boy I was in uh, in my religious family, I just kind of bit down on my questions, bit down on everything, and figured, you know what? It's just a matter of I don't know enough about the religion to actually bring up these questions. So specifically, what, like, give an example. All right, um, an example. Let's see. Uh, I wonder how hard we should go on this. So, uh, I mean, there's some things Jesus even even pulled <laughs> that would just contradict itself. I mean, you just you see little things in there, and it, it doesn't make sense to me how you have a God of the early Genesis-type God who's this mean, wrathful God, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes down to the world, and all of a sudden he's this loving, very you know, peaceful God, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, look, he slew this, God sent them down to kick their butts, you know. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And so things like this I would read or listen to or what have you, and it was interesting to me to look around at the people around me and watch them as they believe this so wholeheartedly that they would be able to state God is a jealous God. He put no other God before him. And then the next statement say, you know, he's this loving God. I mean, how can you have a bipolar God? It just never made any sense to me. I mean, that's only one of the examples. But uh, so throughout my, uh, my younger days, I would be sitting there and I would be uh, listening to all this religion, seeing these contradictions in terms and I would just accept that, well, you know what, I just don't know enough. And so I would sit quietly, I would listen to the lessons, I would continue reading the scriptures, and I would pray quite faithfully. Now, uh, what started changing me was... Did you ever, 
Did you ever get that? Let's see. Mormons say that if you are faithful and you ask honestly with a sincere heart, you'll get a burning sensation in your bosom. Did your bosoms ever burn? After eating Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe when I, uh, my mom used to put mustard on my chest when I'd get sick. So uh, that would really so burn. So you never got bosom. that burning sensation? No. I did, actually. You did? I did. Um, really? I, I think I was maybe nine or ten when um, one of my, you know, my family kind of goes, we weren't like yours, where we'd get up twice a day and do the scriptures. Every once in a while they'd get this religious fervor and we'd have like Sunday school for a month or something and then we'd stop and then six months later we'd have it again. So during one of these periods um, they were giving a little lesson and um, they were playing tapes, I think, of that were written by the church. They bought the stuff from Deseret Book or Seagull or something. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how Joseph Smith um, pulled the Urim and Thummim, uh, the breastplate and the, the eyeglasses out of the ground or something like that. And I actually did. I got that burning sensation in my chest. Well, see, now that's very interesting because, I mean, going through my childhood, I would always try to feel that. I mean, I would sincerely try. And... Looking back on it now, I can see the little ways I fooled myself into thinking, oh, wait, I felt it. I'm a good religious boy. I felt it. Woohoo! Clearly, I was more righteous than you. You know? We just put that on the table. I have noticed that. <laughs> you did become uh, atheist before I, I did. did and <laughs> therefore, uh, you must be on, on a whole other plane, and I just haven't reached that plane yet. I mean, Thank you. Looking back on it now, I, I, I think that I was... Um, deceiving myself, or maybe I got caught up in all the um, religious stuff, or I wanted to feel it so bad that I actually convinced myself that I felt it, or uh, who knows what happened, but um, uh, it, it isn't, that type of stuff isn't convincing. And when you're talking about the stuff where they say, you know, I am absolutely sure this church is true, yeah, that was immune from that from um, day one, because you'd hear everybody else say the same thing, right? My, my church is the one true church. You know, if you don't follow our church, you're going to go to hell. And Jews would be just as uh, certain, or, and yeah. Protestants and Catholics and uh, is followers you know, Muslims of Zeus. And exactly, yeah. they were all certain. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I mean, you, your question is quite pertinent. Uh, I mean, I attempted as best I could, and looking back on it, I actually fooled myself into believing that I had felt these burning sensations. I remember this one time uh, I was uh, back praying, and in fact, I used to go into the canyons. I mean, this is how much I believed in religion. I used to drive back into the canyons or even walk back into the canyons, and I would kneel under trees, and I would pray for a good long time, hoping to feel something. And I wonder if that's a because I did that too. Yeah, once, just once. I, yeah. When I was um, engaged to um, my, it was now my wife. Yeah. I went. And we were trying to figure out, and we'll get into this more when I, I get to my deconversion story. All right. But I went up into the mountains and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I wonder how common that is because of the Joseph Smith story that he went into the grove and prayed and got you know, visited by two persons. That is is exactly the reason why I would go out there because yeah. I would figure, you Me know, too. God is in nature. God is pristine. He visited uh, Joseph Smith in nature, so therefore maybe I could find God there. But, I mean, I remember this one occasion. I can't remember what I was praying about, but I got dizzy. And instantly, 
I started thinking back about all these religious leaders who would say, well, God reaches you in his own way. And so instantly, in my screwed up mind, now that I look back on it, I instantly attributed my dizziness to God answering my question. That's interesting. That it, the human mind is amazing that how um, it'll take it'll grasp on anything. Right? Yeah. Did yeah. you ever have the two personages appear to you? Uh, you know, there was one or two, <laughs> but uh, I was that say, might have been the shroom breakfast I had. Because that also happened to me. You know, I was praying and a ah. bunch of personages. Did you have to go dig up some plates under <laughs> the rock? <laughs> I prayed for. I, well, I brought my Bible up and I prayed for probably three or four hours um, and nothing. And cool. then I'd read like in between and I'd pray some more and read again and pray yeah. some more. Nothing happened. It got dark and I went back home. Yeah. And see, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, you say you felt that burning sensation. I never felt it, but I looked for other ways. I mean, when you're religious, you try to find the ways that support your religion, the ways that support your belief system, and that's exactly what I was doing. And for the longest time, up until I was about 19, and my first trip uh, took me out of the country, and I started seeing different views from this religious view I was raised in. And at first, I was obstinate against it. I would just kind of view them as, well, you know, this is very interesting, but, you know, altogether false. Uh, but the more I saw these views, the more I sat there and started thinking, well, wait a minute. What's to say that my view is the proper view? I hadn't really done much in the way of research where this is concerned. And so because of these little doubts, these little questions that started popping up, I began to do more research into it, more and more, just through my travels, through uh, discussions with Charlie here, through my own research on the Internet, through all sorts of books, until finally, most people say it's evolution, that causes them to lose their religion, for me it was history. I started learning about history, and not only the histories of the church, but history in general. And because of things and aspects in history, I started looking at this going, now wait a minute, I can actually see where religion came from, from what I know from history. And the more detail I got into, the more it just hacked away at religion until one day, I just sat up one day, just sitting there looking around going, wow, I haven't prayed in months, to be honest. And I'm like, you know what, I don't even believe he's up there. And uh, as far as I can see, religion is nothing more than an evolutionary chain of human thought. And so that finally just made me realize, oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. How long from start to finish did that process take you? Well, it was kind of a snowball effect for me. I mean, we're talking a good uh, eight, nine years of traveling where it was slowly chipping away as I was going. But as soon as I started learning certain aspects, especially about the LDS church and history in general, where it went from I believed in God to, okay, this isn't right, from probably a, uh, I, I was religious, to atheist in under two months at that point. That's pretty fast. Yeah. That's pretty fast. My process took years. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's a snowball effect. It was eroding away, and then finally I discovered some things which will be brought up later on in the religiosophy, which finally made me toss up my hands and say, okay, I've searched around enough. There is absolutely no way of explaining this away. Yeah, we're going to try not to spend too much time on Mormonism, but we've 
We're definitely going to do a few episodes on yeah. it. First, because I think it's really interesting. It's actually a fascinating church. And and second, I think it doesn't get um, a fair shake uh, in the media at large, because I don't think there's a lot of people who um, actually know what they believe and, and why they believe it. You get a, a bunch of false stuff. And, and third... And I think one of the reasons that your deconversion process was so quick is that even people in the church don't know their own history. No, they don't. And you start finding stuff out that they don't tell you, or they hide from you, and you start asking those real tough questions. Why? These guys believe in their religion. Why are they hiding this? And that's exactly right, because if somebody is hiding an aspect about their religion, that just denotes that they don't believe in the religion themselves. Otherwise, they would toss everything out there, let the cards fall where they may, and everything be good. Yeah, it's all a matter of what, you know how strong is your confidence in your own beliefs. Exactly. Right? I mean, Mormonism is a religion where people routinely stand up and say, I know my church is true. Yeah. I know... Gordon B. Hinckley or Thomas S. Monson or insert prophet here. I know this guy's a prophet, which basically means he's got a direct line to God. He's talking exactly. to God on a daily basis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a knowledge claim. I know that this is, it's not just I strongly believe it's true, as I know this church is true. I know this guy's a prophet. Um, and it, it's really, it takes a lot to shock you out of that mode of thinking, especially if you're a hardcore drilled into you twice a day, every oh, day for your entire life. We're talking 18 years of this. This was drilled into my head for 18 years, 19 years, until finally I dropped out of college and started traveling the world. And that's kind of an argument for having a course in comparative world religions in high school. Oh, I agree. Um, I, that is the only way I think that you can really insert religion into, into the school curriculum. Right, you teach it from a historical comparative basis. So, uh, Park City was for Utah a pretty progressive, liberal, cosmopolitan tourist town, right? Yeah, that's the exact reason why my parents actually left it. They thought oh, it right. was, they actually thought it was too progressive, and they were worried that our religious standpoint would fall away if we stayed there. Even though I know I didn't have too many non-Mormon friends, maybe two. Oh. You probably didn't have too many non-Mormon friends. Two that I can think of, but their parents were Mormon. They were baptized into the religion. They were just inactive. So even within this, for Utah, a relatively progressive community, we were brought up in an isolated environment where our only exposure to outside religions, for me, was through my parents saying, this is a false religion. Hmm. And so you don't ever get exposed to other religions, right? No. no I, the first time... I went to another church, was in Italy, and of course Catholicism in there. That was the first time, didn't understand a word of what was going on, but it was very pretty. Yeah, first time I learned about it was in college. So I think it would be fantastic, even though in high school I probably would not have wanted to take one, I think it would have been an eye-opening experience. Yeah, I agree. And but... probably a faith-eroding experience. Mm -hmm. Which is probably exactly why they don't do it. Exactly, <laughs> right. And the problem, I guess, would be that in the South they, they teach it probably exactly as my parents. Here's the true religion, Christianity, and here, here are a bunch are of false the, religions. Yeah, here's all the pagans. Take a look at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then. Well, uh, seeing how we've wrapped up uh, my little introduction to uh, my falling away and family and such, how about yourself? All right, I, I had doubts um, from a really young age. Uh, the biggest question specifically for me was my parents consistently told me how blessed I was 
to have been born in Utah uh, in the one place in the world that has the true religion. Yeah, right? you know, my parents said the same thing. <laughs> and it struck me that Utah isn't very big. Um, there are, you know, at that time, probably four or five billion people in the world. Um, how many Mormons? When I was growing up, maybe six million. Six million at best. I mean, yeah. they've grown. Even in the United since. States, right? Yeah. 200 million at that time. Now they're up to 11 million. Um, and there's something like 300 million uh, Americans and 6 billion people, I thought. Well, if that's true, then God isn't doing a very good job of converting people into the true religion. <laughs> and remember, in Mormonism, it's pressed upon you that this is your one shot, right? Yeah. This, one, this is your mortal probation. This is you are sent down here. There's a veil of forgetfulness. Mm. You're sent down here to learn how to get back to God. And if you don't do proper, you're basically punished for it. Yeah, you get, I mean, there are spiritual missionaries when you cross over the other side. Yeah. But why? Why can't God send prophets to Africa, right? Or China or Russia or... Why would he start it up in just one place right. and not several at the same time? Right, why just Joseph Smith? Um, anyway, that bothered me. And the thing with the certainty... You know, where they'd stand up and they'd say, I know this is, this is absolutely truth. Um, you know, the, the gospel came and it was given by Adam and then Jesus gave it again because it fell away. And, and then they apostatized and they fell away uh, from Jesus' time. And this is a last dispensation, right? Yeah. We've got it. We're, we're real close to the end times. How many people have been saying that? <laughs> Joseph Smith brought it back and um, second coming is going to be really soon. Uh, and thank goodness we're here and we're in the one true religion so we won't, you know, <laughs> I don't know, it, it, there's no hell in Mormon theology, but... No, outer darkness is the yeah. idea. You're basically cast off away from God's presence and because you're away from him, that's hell enough, but... I love, there are three kingdoms and if you read the kingdoms, the first kingdom's for people, basically Mormons, I guess. You could get in the, the top kingdom, the celestial kingdom, if you're really, really good. The second kingdom uh, is for people who were fooled by men. They still believe in Jesus, but they believed in the wrong Jesus, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much they fell away right. sort of thing. The yeah. third kingdom is for atheists, rapists, murderers, you know, <laughs> all the really bad people. Yeah, so now, bad. the third kingdom, the one with the atheists and such, it's supposed to be much like this world, so it's not going to be any better or any worse. It's just this world. Right, yeah, it's pretty much. That's not so bad, right? I, I mean, if I, I end up there, so that's much. not bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm growing up and having the doubts, um, and like I said, my parents uh, would go through these um, periods of religious fervor where they, they'd start you know, doing their duty and, and bringing their kids to um, these, these church meetings or whatever. We'd have them in our basement, we'd have, uh, or we'd be taken to my grandparents, and they'd have church meetings. And Actually, there were so many grandkids that they kind of had a little primary in my grandma's basement where we'd stick all the kids so the adults could talk about the real stuff. And that was actually not bad. When they, I got old enough to be brought up into the, the real discussions, my God, that was excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> they would pontificate. They would say, it has been made known to me personally. God revealed this, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, it just that... That did quite a bit to turn me off to religion. Every time I actually went to actual Mormon church, it was the same thing. Yeah. People would stand up and they'd be like, oh, "It has been made known unto me." Thank God that I, you know, I have the Mormon church, and 
and I, you know, I, I broke my leg last week, and it was only through the power of God that it was healed. And I, I thank you so much for all the help. And I'm like, I don't know what the, well, this now, is horrible. Now, my big question: you bring up that uh, basically your church is instead of going to an actual church, you were going to grandparents, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I was baptizing my grandma's swimming pool. That's what I was going <laughs> to bring up. You knew I was bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he was dunked in a swimming pool. Yeah, they took me. Um, they actually had like white clothes, right? Like you guys do. Yeah, yeah. And they took me, and I got dressed, and they dunked me in the swimming pool, baptized. My dad did it. And um, after um, after I was done getting baptized, I came out of the pool. People are asking me, "Oh, do you feel any different? Do you feel any different?" Yeah, they do the same. And no, I felt no different whatsoever. I felt kind of cheated actually because I wanted to feel different, and I was like, ah, I'm the same person. Then they took me in and they conferred the Holy Ghost. They, they do that in church too. Yep, they do that. And, yeah. So they put their hands on me and, um, later on. In the Mormon Church, they give this patriarchal blessing, which yeah. is supposed to uh, kind of chart out the rest of your life. You know, I actually for. have mine. Maybe do you I have should, yours? I should probably read it or at least post it on a religious. That would be very interesting. I've got that. I'll have to look it up. It's in a box somewhere. My dad gave me mine and he recorded it. I'm going to have to ask him if he uh, has Now, it. that would be very curious yeah. to actually compare the two. Yeah, it would be interesting. Um, anyway, so, you know, you're getting older and um, every once in a while we have these spikes of religious fervor and it dies down. And uh, I, I go to college um, I'm going into pre-med, so I'm learning all the science, and it comes time at the end of my second year, I've got to decide what my major is going to be, and I decided on philosophy because I took a philosophy 101 course, and I thought it was fascinating, that was great, they're asking these really important questions, and may not be getting any answers, but the process is at least interesting, right? A lot more interesting than going to church and here. In the Mormon church, they have... Uh, it's not like Catholicism where you actually go through this postgraduate training school. Yeah, it's completely different. You, they have lay people get up from the ward. They just say, okay, uh, Joe over here, um, God wants you to give a talk next Sunday. Yeah. And they prepare it you know, an hour before they go and they give the talk. And it's terrible. Well, I mean, even the teachers, the teachers who are actually teaching the courses in uh, the church itself, they are lay persons as well. They have no educational background in any of this. And this is mostly just them getting this manual every year that goes through the lesson plan that teaches them, okay, this is what this means. Have somebody read this scripture. Have somebody do this. And they just go through and do these lesson plans every week instead of having an educated person up there actually discussing and philosophizing about it. That would have been interesting if they'd done that. The, the whole idea is that they want the people in the church to feel inspired by the spirit to give their talk right exactly i mean in the old church they'd walk up there and they'd they'd give these talks um right off the top of their head right and they'd mm. say well it wasn't me who gave the talk it was the spirit of the lord it was yeah. manifested through me but they've kind of gotten away from that because they've got all these they all got manuals right yeah. i mean they've it, it's a little ridiculous. it's passed out actually not only is it passed out to the teacher but it's passed out to everybody in these classrooms, and you are encouraged to read through these lesson plans before you get to church, and in that way you can participate better with the teacher as they're trying to teach it. But there's a limit to how much they want you to participate. Yeah. You can't start asking bad questions. That's very true. They, they have, they're patient. They'll, they'll work with you for a little while. But after, you know, if you're persistent, they'll, they'll typically get irritated. I have actually been 
thrown out of one church class because they didn't like the questions I was asking and said I was what was it uh, instigating uh, contention yes that's a big thing the, yeah. they don't once you get into an argument it suddenly the spirit of God has fled and now yeah. you have the spirit of the devil the spirit of contention and so that's their way out of getting into an argument right yeah. They'll say, oh, no, there's a spirit of contention in the room, and then then shuts down the argument. Yeah. What right. was the question you asked? Oh, I can't even remember. <laughs> this, was, right. this was years ago when, when I actually just stopped going to those classes at all. So, so I mean, but that was the time when you were a faithful member of the church. Oh, yeah. You just had questions. Yeah, I just had questions. I mean, yeah. serious questions that I was asking about uh, these little intricacies I would hear about from others or from my research. I would come to them and ask them about it, and they would get physically upset with me where they would either i had one instructor come up to me and uh, actually tell me you know what i would appreciate it if you didn't ask these questions in church and the whole reason why i was was because you get that many people together they must have some sort of collective knowledge and to get a discussion going about it it would be faster than hitting one person at a time but yeah. sure um and and if it's an honest question and not asked to just anger people then the church is of course it's the perfect place but it seems like they've got this carefully constructed house of cards and if you start pushing on one of them the whole thing's going to fall down i think that has it to do with every religion yeah yeah so, but yeah. it's kind of an admission right if they can't take questions any question at all yeah anyway um so i mean i'm in college in philosophy learning about all the great questions and um uh, epistemology, you know, study of knowledge, and, and all this stuff, uh, and that really kind of struck at the heart of these knowledge claims that these people are having. You know, when they say, "I know this church is true," what they're really saying is, "I strongly believe the church is true." They like to sell it. They like to say, "I know this church is true," because it sounds a whole lot better, right? The certainty. Um, it's a marketing thing. It's a PR thing. Exactly. You have to be good. And know as much as your neighbor, otherwise you're not as religious right. and righteous as your neighbor. Right. If you say, I strongly believe, that's not as good as Joe down the street who knows, right? Um, so faced with the, those sorts of questions, my, and, and one of the big things for me was the problem of evil, right? Yeah, Where, yeah um, that's also a big thing. Right God there. is all good, he's all powerful, and yet they're still evil, right? Either he's able to stop evil and unwilling, in which case, that's not a very good God, right? Mm -hmm. He's kind of evil himself. If you're going to stand and have all the power in the world to stop this little kid from being molested, and you, do nothing. And you don't, that's evil. Um, or he's not all-powerful. He's willing, but he's not all-powerful, in which case he's not God in the first place. Yeah. Um, so the presence of evil in the universe. And you don't even have to talk about rapists, right? Because, oh, we have free will. But um, uh, natural evil, catastrophes. Yeah. What about the tornado, the tsunami? What yeah. about the earthquake? If God's all-powerful, why would he cause an earthquake under the ocean that would drown all these people? On Indiscriminately. This? Indiscriminately, like, yeah, just blast if, through them. If, if in the, you know, after these disasters, all these preachers come out and say, well, it's God's wrath, right? It's his vengeance. He's tired of being mocked. Or, you know, you accept homosexuality, so therefore he sent this tsunami. Yeah. Um, well, if that were the case, God's all-powerful. Couldn't he just selectively kill the people who he didn't like? <laughs> Why does he have to wipe out all of them? Supposedly he did it in Egypt. <laughs> Supposedly he did it in Egypt. Why isn't he doing it again? Well, he's like, all these questions. Um, and uh, now I meet uh, this girl that I'm going to marry. 
And there's a big crisis because she is on your side of the fence, right? Yeah. My side of the fence, are they don't like the church because they're not Mormon enough, basically. Yeah. They gave up some of their principles, um, and they shouldn't have. And uh, actually, your dad was on the excommunication council yeah. for my parents. That excommunicated your parents. Yep. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Both of our families just have this interconnection religiously that is just mockingly funny. It, it is awesome. Anyway, yeah. So basically, your dad got my my parents excommunicated from the church. So now here's my here's my dilemma. I've I'm going to get married to this girl. She's a faithful Mormon. I don't have a whole lot of faith, but but at that point, I'm trying, right? I'm yeah. trying. You were missionaries, um, the whole thing, yep. reading books. I talked to missionaries. I talked to bishops. Um, I talked to a bunch of my friends who were faithful Mormons. Including um, my brothers. Including your brother, <laughs> who wanted me to read Jesus the Christ um, by Talmadge. And I read it, um, and, and I don't recommend it. I think it's a, a terrible book. But I read it um, <laughs> because, you know, you're supposed to, if you want to read anti-Mormon literature, or, or in this case, fundamentalist literature, you have to read like the the stuff from the source too. You got to read their stuff too. Yeah. So I did, um, and what? F- looking back on it now, the funny thing to me is, my choice was either the religion I was brought up in, or the religion my wife is in. Right? Yep. Both of which is flavors of Mormonism. Yep. I never even considered Catholicism. No. evangelical and you know, don't unless you unless something long. else comes into see your sphere yeah. you never consider it right it was either one of these two religions exactly. nothing else so i was hoping for this you know huge conversion experience where either my wife would be converted to my point of view or i would be converted to hers none of that happened i stayed in my beliefs uh she stayed in hers uh, not for lack of trying i mean we tried pretty hard yeah we got married anyway. I went to medical school, and the uh, constant calls for evidence was really, I think, what did it. Um, they'd always, you know, mockingly, they'd say, well, Dr. Morrison, why would you treat this patient in this manner? What evidence do you have for that? You know, um, what do you want to do in this case? Well, why do you want to do that? What literature, what articles have you read um, that, that support that? You know, it's all about evidence-based medicine, treating patients based on the practice guidelines and and stuff that's been subjected to randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials. And I started thinking, my God, I don't have any evidence at all. No. Not just for Mormonism. That's just, you know, one of my philosophy professors, Fred Hagen, um, (laughs) called it the local cult, right? I love that guy. (laughs) It was beneath his radar. It was Christianity. I took an ancient philosophy course from him. And this is, we're talking... 500 B.C., right, is the focus of his course. Pre-Socratics, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle is pretty much it. Which would be fascinating. It was a great course. But he he spent half a good half of the course bashing on Christianity. (laughs) Um, He was so pissed off. Um, And, you know, the Mormons uh, were just this local cult to him. They were just part of Christianity as a whole. Right, this kind of wacky outlier group. But... um, now I've lost my train of thought. Uh, you were continuing towards why you never, lack of trying notwithstanding, why you started slipping away because of lack of evidence. Oh, right. So I realized in these, it started in the philosophy courses where, you know, you, you realize, well, there aren't any real good ag- uh, arguments for God, no. right? You talk about um, the argument from first cause, which is pretty much Aristotle, um, the cosmological argument, the ontological argument. The Kalam cosmological argument, 
none of which stand up. Um, the ontological argument is uh, almost a parody of itself. It's just it's it's a play on semantics, and I mean we'll probably go through all this stuff yeah, anyway. But they all fall apart. Um, and uh, and finally, it occurred to me, um, and I got this uh, subscription to Skeptical Inquirer, and so I'm reading all this debunking of of uh, dowsers and Bigfoot and UFO sightings and ghosts <laughs> and all this stuff, and I'm thinking this is equally ridiculous. That religion is equally ridiculous as all the stuff that's being debunked in here. I have no evidence for this. Um, and I didn't want to call myself an atheist, so I thought at the beginning I was an agnostic. But it was I remember waking up one morning thinking, I just cannot muster a sincere belief in God. I can't do it. It's impossible for me. That process took from probably the beginning of college through first year of residency. So we're talking nine years. It probably took me nine years. So, I mean, basically we had just about the same amount of time before both of us turned atheist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, roughly the same amount of time. Mine was a bit slower being eroded and then just one quick... <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Yours was like this massive avalanche at the end. Mine was more slow, and I just kind of discovered that uh, I really don't believe in God. Um, and, and at that moment, it's this feeling of incredible loneliness because it's just you. Uh, my, on both sides of my family, everyone believes in God. Yeah. Nearly all of my friends, with the exception of a philosopher friend of mine and, and one of the docs uh, that I did, went to residency with, uh, everyone else in my life had a belief in God, fervent belief in God. When I told my mom that I didn't believe in God, she cried. Yeah. <laughs> I made her cry. Yeah. Um, but it, I just, I remember feeling so alone. It took a while to get over that. Um, and the, interesting, every time I talk to people who are, are deeply religious, one of the first questions on finding out that I'm atheist, they say, well, what do you think happens after you die? Nothing. Doesn't it bother you that... You're not going to live on? Oh, that reminds me of something my father actually said to me. There are no atheists in a foxhole. And I find that absolutely laughable because although I did cherish life when I was religious, I cherish it even more now because as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing after this. Right. What's more valuable, a finite lifetime or a time where you have uh, an eternity to spend? Yeah. I mean, if you look at our 70 years, 80 years maybe that we have here, if it is part of eternity... That's a drop in the bucket. Isn't, doesn't it seem ridiculous to judge what you're going to spend in eternity based on an 80-year period? period? Yeah, see, that's, that's another fallacy, another thing that I was questioning in my younger days growing up. It just didn't make any sense to me why you would come down here just over this span of sometimes 30 years. I mean, depending on when you die... And then all of a sudden you're judged for it. And actually one, uh, one particular layman teacher tried to explain that to me by saying that uh, the reason why we are judged by that is God knows who we are individually. And therefore the reason why we were put on this world and lose our memory of the previous life is so we can show ourselves who we are. Yeah, I heard that too. Because yeah. God knows everything, right? God knows and everything. So when you get down to it, you, you'll you'll talk to these people for you know ten or fifteen minutes. When you get down to it, they have to admit God knows everything, and they'll try to squirrel away. They'll try to say, "Well, He knows you just like you know your kids, right? You know yeah, what your kids yeah, gonna do." Well, then you say, "Well, then He doesn't know 
everything yeah. about us, that right? We could surprise God because my kids sometimes surprise me. No, no, you can't. He knows there. Okay, so he does know everything. So he knows what we're going to do a week or two weeks. So actually he knows our entire life. What is he doing up there? Masturbating while we're going through this whole thing? It's just one massive cosmic joke. Just to teach ourselves who we are because underneath his guidance, it's like a parent standing next to a child. They're not going to act out or anything, and therefore yeah. we have to find that out. That sounds nice until you think of the, con the, the two steps beyond that. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Wow. Why go to the trouble of creating the entire universe as a backdrop? Why can't he just put us through a computer simulation? Yeah. <laughs> Here's your probabilities of going to the telestial, the celestial, or the terrestrial kingdom. Yeah, let's see. You scored 50% here <laughs> and 25 on either of these, so we're just going to say this one. Yeah. Anyway, that's basically, uh, that's it. Yeah, that's pretty much both of our deconversion stories, if you will. So next week, uh, we want to talk about the flood. I thought we were talking, not the flood, uh, about Egypt, the Genesis, or not the Genesis, the... Ten plagues? Yeah, the ten plagues. Is that what we're talking Egypt. about? I think we're talking about that. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Quite the lesson plan here. We get one every year, too. <laughs> Excellent. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Yeah.